Thank you, Pastor Brenda, and good morning, church. Let me add my welcome to hers, whether you're in person or online. It's good to be with you today. We are in the midst of our Cruciform Life series, How the Cross Changes Everything, and each week kind of builds on the next. So if you've missed one, do go online and check it out. Um, our life groups are also going through curriculum on this series, and we have a book study um, on Thursdays using one of our key texts of this series, so lots of ways uh, to engage it. Let me by begin by just doing a little bit of a recap. Um, we've been talking about last week in John, it says, no one has seen God before Jesus. John makes this bold claim that all these glimpses of God that various people in the Old Testament have gotten have been nothing more than glimpses because until Jesus showed up, nobody had seen God. Jesus has always been like God. And the cross shows us how far God will go to forgive. In Romans 5.8, it says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, God doesn't love us because Jesus sacrificed himself for us. God loves us so much that he sent his son. He already loves you. Jesus is the result of God's love for you, not the cause of God's love. Now, these last three weeks have laid a little bit of the groundwork for what we're going to be talking today. Now, this, to be honest, before we started this series, this was the week I was least looking forward to. Who wants to talk about Old Testament violence? You maybe have never heard a sermon on it. Maybe when you're doing your Bible through a year program, you get to those and you're just not sure what to make of it and you pass right along. That's okay. I've done the same in my journey because they are challenging passages, challenges that talk about genocide about women being killed, about children being killed. These are not easy to reconcile to our faith. And so I am leaning into this book here by Greg Boyd. He's a pastor and theologian called Cross Vision. This idea that we've been talking about this whole time, that Jesus on the cross, this cruciform shape, is how we view our scriptures the lens we view them through is Jesus on the cross, and especially so for these Old Testament violent passages that seem so at odds with who Jesus is. So let's pray before we dig in deeper. God, I thank you that you are here. I thank you that you are present through your Holy Spirit, Jesus. And so may your Holy Spirit be at work in this time. In your name, amen. Let's begin with Luke 24. This is after Good Friday, after Jesus had died and resurrected. He is on a journey, on a walk to Emmaus, and he comes along these two disciples, and they're wondering about, you know, they're talking about what had happened in Jerusalem, and they don't yet know Jesus is Jesus. And then their eyes are revealed, and he says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This would have been a Bible study I would have loved to have been at. Jesus sitting down, I don't know how long this took, right? Going from Moses through all the prophets, looking at all the scriptures and doing what? Showing how they pointed to himself, Jesus Christ, the son of God. And so that's the posture we're taking. How do these passages point 
to Jesus. How do they point specifically to Jesus on the cross? And that's what we're going to unplug. That's our premise as we dig in because Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. Jesus says in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the giver of life, and he invites us to abundant life. So we're going to look at these passages through him. Greg Greg Boyd in this book says it this way, as Jesus himself taught, everything else in scripture is to be interpreted in a way that points to him. Thus, nothing in scripture should ever be interpreted in a way that qualifies or competes with his revelation of God. So if we're in the Old Testament and we're reading about God, we're reading about these stories, they're they're not to diminish who Jesus is. They're not to compete with who Jesus is. Jesus is the real thing, and these scriptures are pointing to him. So we understand them in light of Jesus, okay? Now, some people have asked, why do we even have to read the Old Testament? If there are so many troubling things in there, can't we just skip it? Well, I love road trips. And the point of the road trip is not just to the destination, but it's the trip itself. The destination here would be Jesus. But what we learn along the way is that the Old Testament is really God's rescue story of humanity. We learn that God loves us. We learn that he is slow to anger. We realize that he has a plan for us to bear his image out into the world. But there are also troubling passages. So We have to start at the very beginning. When I was typing those words, let's start at the very beginning. I thought, should I sing it? Because that's actually a lyric in a song. Erica is shaking, do not sing it. It's from The Sound of Music, if you know that. Uh, I will not be singing it. (laughs) No, Denver, not going to do that. But let's start at the beginning. This Genesis one we've talked about several times. This is where God says, you are to reflect my image into the world. You're to be flourishing into the world. God didn't change his plan when humanity sinned. He's working with what he has. But there are several troubling, and these should be troubling to you, passages. You not should think, oh, these are easy. They are not easy. Exodus 22, whoever sacrifices to any other God than the Lord must be destroyed. Deuteronomy 21, a child who is lazy or stubborn must be stoned to death. Yeah, yeah. How many of us would have made it to adulthood? How many of our kids would still be alive? This should be shocking to us. Probably didn't have a lot of Bible studies on this passage. Number 16, we see almost 15,000 Israelites killed by a plague. Jeremiah 13, I will smash them one another, against one another, parents and children alike, declares the Lord. Judges 20, the children and women are included in the slaughter of these enemies. This is just not one army fighting another army. We see these passages where women and children are also said to wipe them out. What do we do with that? We should look at those and go, I don't know how they fit. This is not easy. This really conflicts with what I learn of Jesus. Marcion, who was a second century theologian, he was alive from 85 to 160, so not too far from Jesus. He could not reconcile it. He said, this God of the Old Testament has introduced a new God called Jesus. So he really had no use for the Old Testament. I was hearing a megachurch pastor a few months ago say, let's just unhook the Old Testament from our faith. It's too troublesome to deal with. I don't think those are the right approach that we should take to the Old Testament, but we should wrestle through how to deal with it. 
in Sinners in the Hands of Loving God, Brian Zahn says these are four different things we might think of and how to deal with it. One, we can question the morality of God. Is God truly a monster? Does he truly want genocide? Is that who God is? Maybe God does change over time, but Scripture tells us that God does not change. Three, we can question how we read Scripture. Or four, let's ignore this whole thing. Who wants number four? Yeah, yeah. There's coffee and cakes in the circle. Um, and, and to be honest, probably most of us are in that number four. We're not sure what to make of it, um, but I think it is helpful for us to take a stab at it because what I see for people that have maybe left the church or won't even consider a faith is they read these stories and go, how do you explain that? And we might not always have the perfect explanation, but I want to give us tools, or maybe you're wrestling yourself. How do we make sense of that? And there's not just one way to, to try to attack this um, or to try to explain this. Um, to be honest, the way that I kind of grew up with was really best represented in this book. And the author here, David Lamb, does a fabulous job. It's called God Behaving Badly. Is the God of the Old Testament angry, sexist, and racist? And... He tries to defend God. He tries to explain cultural things and how his plain reading of the text might not be as bad as it seems, um, but he defends what he sees there. And to be honest, that's probably where I landed for much of my Christian journey. I thought God is the author of life. Life is a gift. He can take it whenever he wants. He can destroy whoever he wants to. He is God. And and, and maybe that is a definition you could walk away with, but it, does not, it is not compatible with who we see in Jesus. Jesus is the author of life, the giver of life. He invites us to abundant life. We actually see the enemy being the one, the destroyer, the one who takes life, the one who brings evil into this world. And so I don't try to defend that type of God, because I don't think it represents who God is through Jesus Christ. The thing is, this is something that may not be on our front of our mind, but if we think that maybe, just maybe, that God really is, could be genocidal, maybe really he could just wipe out thousands of people, there's probably a part of us that has this unhealthy anxiety about God. Maybe, just maybe, if I mess up, he could do the same to me. And that was my early years, for sure. And then I sort of found Jesus afresh, and I thought, there's something there I can't quite, you know, I love Jesus. I'm not sure about this other one. I'm just going to hold on tighter to Jesus and not think about the other thing so much. Jesus says he came to bring peace. But I think that other view of God is really bringing anxiety. So two different ways to get at it. This is the question I want us to have on our mind. If it doesn't look like Jesus on the cross, then something else must be happening here. Something else must be going on if it doesn't look like Jesus on the cross. Now let me position this, this talk in our familiar three levels of belief, we talk about our theology, our beliefs in three levels, convictions, persuasion, opinions. Convictions are those essentials to the gospel. Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. If somebody was not a believer and they came to you and said, what do I have to believe 
to follow Jesus. These might be those things. It centers on Jesus. Persuasion level things are things that are important but not essential to the gospel. Baptism, Lord's Supper, uh, they could be things like should women be in ministry, LGBTQ things. They're important things to work through but not essential to the gospel. This would be in this level two, how you deal with, how you make sense of these challenging things in the Old Testament, okay? These are not salvation-level beliefs. Each of us has to do something with it, and that something might be ignoring it, um, but somehow we have to try to dig in if you want to go there. What is our conviction? Jesus Christ. See, Christianity is not an idea. It's a person, the Son of God. Christianity isn't an idea, and it's an event, It's an event. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not thoughts and ideas about Jesus. It's Jesus himself. See, if our faith is really a set of ideas, then it becomes threatened by an alternative set of ideas. But what sits at the center is not an idea, but a person, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, the one who loves us, the one who wants relationship with us, the one who wants to transform us inside and out. And Scripture helps us to learn of that Jesus. Now, some of us might have a flat view of Scripture, meaning that every verse carries the same weight as every other verse, right? That's why we have these three levels, because Not every verse is as critical to our faith as every other verse. Jesus himself says they're to be pointing to him on the cross, Jesus Christ. That's where they'll be pointing to. So I emphasize Jesus and who he is, not just in my faith, but in my reading of the word. We have a relationship with the living God, not a book. This book is very important. It's inspired. It's our home base. It tells us about Jesus And so that's where we're pointing to as we read scripture is Jesus. Yesterday at the Life Group Leader Retreat, Drew was giving us a a, a session on how to study your Bible and why to study your Bible. And he said, a good question to ask when you're looking at a passage is, what would we lose if this passage wasn't there? What does this passage tell us about Jesus? So you might have that in mind as we look at some of these stories. What would we lose? And you think, man, those would be good to lose. We've had people like Marcy, and he just wants to cut out the Old Testament. We've lost nothing. But I think we lose actually this image of Jesus on the cross and how he shows up for the people in these stories. So as we look at these passages we've already looked at. They don't look like Jesus. So what is that something else that's going on here? I want to look at three things. What is the something else? One, a progressive revelation. There's a journey in scripture. We've unpacked a little bit of this already, and so I don't want to spend too much time on this, but we have looked at sacrifices. Leviticus itself is a whole book on how to bring your offerings and sacrifices. What rules to follow. But then in the Psalms, we see, we see David saying, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. We see also in the prophets in Hosea, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And then we see Jesus himself quoting Isaiah 6 two times. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned 
the innocent. So we see from Leviticus to Jesus this big progression. Sacrifices were a thing like we talked about two weeks ago, that not that God invented, they were already doing sacrifices. And so he steps into that system and says, this is what you can sacrifice to have peace with me, to relieve your anxieties. But the sacrifices were never the point. The point was relationship with God and transformation, image-bearing into God's creation. And they began to understand that the longer they journey with God. And Jesus emphasizes that point as well. See, when Jesus arrives, we see God face to face. He comes onto the scene and he steps into the synagogue and he reads the Isaiah scroll, he has the Isaiah scroll in the synagogue and he is reading, and this is what he reads from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you go back to Isaiah you'll see that Jesus stopped at a very critical point in his reading of Isaiah. He doesn't read the next line that says, and the day of vengeance of our God. I don't think that was accident, right? I don't think that was just coincidental. And then he goes on in Luke to say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. See, Jesus reveals God fully, and he moves people forward in their understanding of God. He doesn't coerce them to have right beliefs and right theology. He meets them where they are, and he grows them. We see another example of this progression, again, back to Leviticus. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If somebody injures you, right, they hurt your eye, you take their eye. The person must suffer the same injury. But then we see Jesus. You've heard it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Eye for an eye was actually a progression of where people were at. It limited the retaliation of violence. You know, they might say, eye for your life, right? And they're like, no, 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 let's put a cap on revenge. And then Jesus takes them another step further. says, don't resist the evil person. He grows them from where they have been. See, God doesn't coerce people into having true thoughts about him. And you can think about your own life. Is God forcing you to have right theology about right beliefs? Does he refuse to have relationship with you until you have it all in order? No. That's not how God operates, and it never has been. He meets us, and he grows us. God is not above stooping down to meet people where they are. And this is the second point. What is that something else that's going on here? God's accommodation. See, his goal from Genesis 1 to have us be image bearers is not, you know, thrown off track because of sin. That is still his mission. In these portraits we read of God in Scripture that are troubling, the, the writers are ascribing to God their own understanding of God, which often looks like the ancient Near Eastern version of God, of the gods around them. They're ascribing things to God that they've seen in the other religions. The other gods are violent, so our God must be violent as well. The other religions write about how their gods wipe people out. 
And we can probably be pretty certain that their gods didn't wipe anybody out, right? Because their gods aren't real. There are other ways that we see this happening. Many of the Old Testament narratives make it clear that God did not actually do the violence that they're ascribing to him. Now, I don't have time to unpack every verse. There are over 600 of them. And if you do want to see how do these different approaches tackle that, do come up afterwards, and there's an index. They might not have all 600, but they have a lot of them, and you can see how these different approaches deal with this, and those might be helpful for you. But I do want to unpack one story. Um, So God has to meet people where they're at, and that includes them having false views of who he is. And he'll even take on the appearance of a fallen view of God in order to show them that that is not who he is. Okay? Have you ever had a less than perfect view of God? Yeah? He will still meet you in that, but he will stretch you. He'll accommodate where you're at, and he'll grow you. So I want to tell you one story. What story, if you were to think, what story in the Old Testament will contrast who the ancient Near Eastern religions are and who God is? Any guesses? All right. First service pegged it. So it's no judgment on you guys. So scripture tells us that God asked Abraham to kill his son Isaac. (laughs) Now, if God asked you to kill your child... What would you do? You don't have to yell it out. (laughs) What would you say? What would you think? Would you try to clarify that it was really God? Would you ask a spouse? A partner? A friend? And say, hey, God is asking me to do this crazy thing. I, I don't know what to make of that. What if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was God speaking to you and he said, kill your child? Would you push back? Would you question? Would you say, God, this does not seem consistent with your character. What's the point of this? Why would you ask me to do this? What does Abraham say? Crickets. Nothing. Okay, why does he do that? Because this is what the other religions require of you. They can ask you to kill your child, and so you do. Now, if you know the story, you know God intervenes and doesn't allow Abraham to kill Isaac. But it's so interesting that Abraham never ever thinks... Uh, why, why would I do that, God? Now, to be fair to Abraham, God had not yet said, don't kill children, all right? And to be fair to him, you know, he's still getting to know God and who this God is like. And God wants to make it so clear to him, that is not who I am. I'm not going to require that of you. See, we can look at these ugly portraits in the Old Testament through the ugliness of the cross. And Jesus on the cross is a hard thing to look at. And we can look at that child sacrifice and go, that is a hard thing to look at. But it's transformed into beauty when we see God meeting people where they're at to show them who he's really like. 
we have to sometimes see beyond the surface of the picture. We have to see that God accommodates us, that he meets us, that he bears our sin. God covenants with the people. He's committed to them even when they make him look bad. And doesn't he do the same today for us? For most of us, our understanding of God has grown from, you know, maybe you're here and you're still wondering and, and trusting in this God and you've come on a doozy of a Sunday, let me tell you. <laughs> this is a hard topic. But God meets us wherever we might be. He meet, met Israel wherever they might be. And he journeys with them and he does the same for us. God enters the ugliness of our world. He doesn't run away from it. He meets us with his love. He reveals as much of himself as we can take. But he doesn't coerce us to have right thoughts about himself, right beliefs. Third, um, what is the something else? And, and there could be like 10 different points on here. I had over 20 pages for this sermon, but you guys would be here all afternoon, so I've, I've cut it down uh, over half of it. So the third point that I want to bring up today is another way of viewing these things. It's not actually God doing the violence, but we can see that it's the evil one, in particular in this passage in Exodus. The story is that Moses wants the Pharaoh to release them to go out and to worship, and the Pharaoh hems and haws about this. Okay, you can go, no, you can't go, and a series of plagues happen, culminating in the plague of the death of the firstborn. And we see this in Exodus 12. It says this, God will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. God withdraws his protection from Egypt. He pulls back so the evil one can have his way. The evil one wanted to destroy everything. God only allows the firstborn to be killed. God limits the destruction. The same verbs that are applied to God, that are ascribed to God, are ascribed to other violent agents in the Old Testament in exactly the same way that they are in the other ancient Near Eastern religions. People are coming to terms with who God is, and they're trying to understand that through their limited understanding, and God doesn't force them to go further than they are able Next, God moves humanity forward into reflecting his image. He does not stop growing them. See, the violence in Scripture isn't, you know, shocking, to be honest. It was a very violent world. And as I was thinking about this sermon, I was like, it is still a very violent world. We don't have to look very far to see wars, to see potential wars, to see people dying so much right now in Ukraine. We live in a violent reality. But what is surprising in the, in the midst of these stories in the Old Testament, not the violence, but the way God is actually moving people forward. We've read some of the difficult things Leviticus says, but 
Leviticus also says this, to leave a corner of your field unharvested. Why? So the poor can come and harvest that, so you can take care of the needs of the poor. Leviticus also says to love your neighbor. Deuteronomy, as well as the troubling passage we read, also says to care for the widows and the orphans and their refugees. See, God is introducing new ideas into humanity, things that we might take for nature now. God is moving humanity forward, but he meets them where they're at in their limited understanding of who he is. Now, the dominant portrait of God in the Old Testament, I think, is a lovely one that matches so much with Jesus on the cross. Of course, the violent ones that we've touched on and many others don't, but this God of love breaks through regardless. In Jeremiah 31, it says this, O Ephraim is my dear son. This is God speaking to his people, my child in whom I take pleasure. Every time I mention his name, my heart bursts with longing for him. Everything in me cries out for him. Softly and tenderly, I wait for him. This is God's decree. This is a new concept of God coming to the people. He's growing them in their understanding of who he is. When we see these passages, we have to think something else is going on here when we read passages that aren't consistent with Jesus Christ. Now, is it easy to read the Bible this way? Not if you've been reading it in a defending God sort of genocidal way. It can take a while to change that lens, to change this view that I'm bringing to you today. But friends, I have found it transformative. I have found it so helpful as I read those difficult things to see how far God's love will go to meet this people with where they're at. It's powerful. Because it's not just something he did in the past. He's doing it right now. He meets us where we're at. He doesn't force us into believing in him or to have correct ideas about him, but he meets us and he grows us with our bad theology, misconceptions, and faulty ideas. In the midst of our sin and messing up, he will still be with us through it. See, we see Jesus on the cross, his arms wide, his love for us, welcoming us, loving us. Jesus wasn't trying to convince the Father to love us. God loves you already. He sent Jesus to show us that. Jesus is the result of God's love. He loves us. He forgives us. He welcomes us in and invites us on a journey of transformation. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are a good God. And God, I pray for just your Holy Spirit to be at work in and through us as we wrestle with passages that are troubling, God. May we dig deeper when they're confusing. When we get questions about what about this, um, may we listen to people's hearts and concerns to hear where they're at, to hear their stories. May we not be quick to respond, God, but may we be quick to offer love and a listening ear, and may, God, we see you meeting us in all of our brokenness. You desire to heal and transform, and we thank you for your incredible gift. In your name, Jesus. Amen.